Oh, I can I can whitelist individuals. Okay, so I've explicitly whitelisted Dan and not you, Joe, just nice. to wind you up. Fucking prick. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever want to know when I was last online, you have to ask Dan, and then Dan can look at my <laughs> profile, and then Dan can choose whether to tell you or not. It's going to be our whole history is just screenshots of your profile. <laughs> Who's Era 70? I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And another plug for hashtag AskEra. You can ask us those questions on Twitter or in Telegram, or you can email us, error.show slash contact. We always like your questions. They can be about anything you like, whether it's Linux or technology or, I don't know, just random stuff. But let's start today then with a question about Linux. If it wasn't for security through obscurity, would Linux really be a more secure desktop than the likes of Windows? Is it simply because there are a small number of users that it is more secure than Windows? So I am not a security expert, and there are way smarter people who who do these things than I do. But uh, my, my general high-level understanding of the current landscape of things is that... Um, it's actually terrible and, and security is not good, but we have lots of plans and we're working on making security better. And theoretically, um, once all these plans have been carried out, like containerization and portals and all these sorts of things that uh, we're striving to get somewhere where security on the Linux desktop might be comparable to iOS and Android is kind of what it seems like the current state of affairs is. Are we talking security like in the current time or are we talking security looking back over history of all the horrible things that have happened on Windows when you compare Windows and Linux? Well, either. Let's say for argument's sake, we are talking about um, back in the, I don't know, Windows XP Vista days. A lot of that was down to people running strange things they've downloaded off the internet. Um, and, you know, attachments that they've received in their email. And some of those attachments were malformed in such a way that they look like a PDF, but they're actually an executable, or they look like a document and they're actually, a you know, effectively a desktop file, that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know that we're actually that much better off on Linux because... What you've effectively got is people who aren't security experts on the Windows desktop being fooled, being tricked. And if we had the same market share as Windows, I'm not saying we would become a, a, as big a target, um, but that might be the case. But you would have, in amongst that pool of users, the same demographic of users who aren't security experts. And those same people would likely get fooled into opening some malformed thing in Thunderbird or clicking on a thing that looks like a download button on a web page, but is actually masquerading as something else. You know, I think because we don't have the audience, there's there's two parts to that. There's, we're not an attractive target because there's not enough people to make a botnet and not enough high profile people that you might, or you want to target for fleecing them for money. But equally, there's not enough people of the right, um, I don't know, mental attitude or, you know, security mindedness that it, it just isn't worth it. They, they wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get enough people. 
Right. Well, I do agree with that, but I disagree that Linux is fundamentally insecure. I think that compared with a Windows desktop of yore, let's say, now it's got better with 10 and stuff, but let's look back to the XP Vista days. Back then, in order to get root or to run something as root, you didn't even need to click a second um, you know, prompt or anything. It, the, the application would just run as root effectively. Whereas on Linux, you're required to enter a password at least. And okay, fair enough, someone who's not particularly security-minded could easily be tricked into it. And that's something to think about when doing things like um, updates, for example. Prompting a user to put in their password every time you do an update trains them to not even think about why they're putting it in. But with the old Windows, you just never had to even consider doing that. And and now, even, you just have to click yes, okay, whereas you don't have to actively engage and remember the password. So for me, you know, as an end user, I feel safer on Linux than I do on Windows. But I don't know, I would obviously defer to experts on this. I think you're overconfident about the security of Linux because why do you need to worry about whether they have root or gain root or not on your system because the thing that's probably most valuable to you is not root owned files probably the thing that's most valuable to you is the stuff that's in your home directory so all it takes is for something to run as you not as root in order to potentially start a a process in the background that takes your data, your SSH keys, your GPG keys, all your email that's in .thunderbird, which is a well-known directory that everybody knows, or all your browser history that's in .config, um, Firefox, or wherever, and ferry that off slowly to an, to another site. And there's no root needed for that. And even if they did need root, they could pop up a box that looks vaguely like a... a, a PK exec or uh, GK pseudo style thing, and you would type your root password in. All right, so you are arguing that Linux is, is no more secure than Windows. Is it less secure? I'm not necessarily arguing it's less secure or more secure. I'm just arguing that I think we are sometimes a little overconfident with how secure it is. And it's very easy to be overconfident when you're not the target. As soon as you become the target, that that confidence will drain away very quickly. I think I agree with Alan that the place we are right now is, yeah, sure, maybe it's difficult to get root, and I don't really know if that's an accurate statement or not, but let's assume that it's impossible to get root on a Linux box. It doesn't really matter if, like he said, the things that are important to you are easily accessible by your own same user, that you are running processes that have privileges to get to the things that you care about, you know, vacuums up your pictures folder and things like that. So uh, it kind of seems like until we get to a point where processes are sandboxed from each other and have to ask for explicit permission to access the file system, that we don't really have real security. I mean, even anything that's running X right now, like applications can just take screenshots or video casts or, um, you know, Right now, any application can just start recording audio or like the, there's nothing really stopping malicious applications from gathering lots and lots of data and sending it off to the Internet. Or logging your key presses. 
I'm I'm less bothered by something having root because if it has root, sure, it has access to the packages that I have installed. But I'm way more worried about what's in my home directory than what's what's on the file system because I can reinstall Linux in half an hour. But getting my 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 data is more important to me than than anything else on the system. Hashtag ask error. Would you rather be old and rich or young and poor? Now, let me explain a little bit more about this. So old and rich is, I don't know, say in your 70s and not like Mark Zuckerberg rich, but comfortable, house paid for, can go on a few holidays a year, nice car, you know, nothing um, extraordinary, but, you know, well to do. Or would you rather be 20 and maybe not penniless, not living on the street, but, you know, not not doing too well and having to work really hard and, and stuff? I think that I've got to go with young and poor because I've been young and poor. I've never been old and rich. It's not that bad. Um, you get your burn rate down and you, you realize quickly that if if you live within your means that you can have very, very little and, and still have a pretty good life. And it seems like that if you're unhappy uh, with having little means that you're probably trying to reach too far outside of those means. And that's not to say that there isn't a level of poverty where like everything just sucks. But if you're like reasonably like, you know, I can eat food and pay for rent in something, then, you know, any, anything after that is a luxury. And I, I don't know. I just I just feel like uh, you can really rob yourself really expecting to have an extravagant lifestyle or you can be happy with what you got and and live a really actually good life with lots of freedom really if if you don't have too many financial obligations this is a really difficult one because it seems obvious young and poor because then you've got the opportunity to get rich but if you were rich and old then you can get good health care and like potentially live quite a long time and be really comfortable and not have to go through all the ball like of trying to earn a living. Although I think ultimately everyone surely would go for the young and poor because you can always work really hard and get rich. So I think, yeah, I'm going to have to go for young. So I remember seeing a survey some years ago where they asked people at various ages what the best generation of their life was. And, you know, they asked 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, all the way up, asking them what decade of your life was the best. And everyone seemed super surprised that the people right at the top end of the scale, like the 70-year-olds, they all said that the last 10 years have been the best of their life. Now, you could argue that they don't remember the, the, their 20s because it was 50 years ago. But, um, you know, assuming the data is good and they were all asking people who are comp compass mentors, you know, it seems like a, a reasonable thing to expect that People who have seen a lot of life, had a lot, lot of experiences already, and probably don't have to work in their 70s, are going to enjoy that time. Maybe they've got children, maybe they've got grandchildren, maybe they don't. Maybe they're just spending their twilight years roaming the planet, or as my dad did, just walking down the local bar, having some tapas, enjoying the sun, traveling around a little bit, enjoying the outside. I don't know which I would pick because part of me thinks I'd like to be young again 
and have another go at that. Maybe if I could be young and have the memory of me now, sure, that might be fun. But I don't want to wish my life away and be the old rich person. But equally, I don't really fancy all the rubbish that I had to go through when I was younger. So I don't know. I'm torn. I'm really torn. I, I actually probably think I'd go for older rather than younger. I find that very surprising. I thought everyone would think about this and ultimately come to the same conclusion that you can get rich as you get older. You have time on your hands. You've got 50 years to make that money somehow, come up with a good idea, work really hard, learn the things that you need to learn. It just seems obvious to me. So why hasn't everyone done that then? Well, everyone's trying, aren't they? Are they? Are they really? I suppose not your work-shy, bar-and-idle layabouts. There's plenty of people I've worked with over the years and friends I have for whom money is not the primary driver. And I know that seems alien to you, Joe, but that's because you're a tightwad. I've got friends who don't... Money is not a factor. It's like, as long as they've got enough to, to get along and, you know, pop down the pub now and then and see their friends and maybe go on a holiday now and then, then they're golden. Like, having being, in inverted commas, rich doesn't feature on their radar, doesn't feature on their plans at all. Yeah, I, I kind of suppose that the question was that you are perpetually in this state and there's no transition. Like, you just get to be poor forever and, and I guess, young forever. Oh, well, frame it like that and fuck being young and poor, then I'd rather be old and rich if it's forever. I, I think I'd still, I, even, even forever, I'd still be on that end because, like, Alan described to some of his friends, I think for me, the choices that I've made in life so far have optimized for free time, not for money. And I think that I, I could very easily still even decide one day to optimize for money and I could have a lot more things, but I'd have a lot less time and a lot less self-direction and probably a lot less pride in, in myself, to be honest. And and I think that's more important to me is being able to spend my time doing the things that I really care about than having lots of stuff or funds, I suppose. Yeah. And I feel the same way. If I, if money was the primary driver in my life, I wouldn't be working for Canonical. I'd be doing something else almost certainly. Well, similarly, uh, I, I really resent the accusation that I'm completely driven by money. I might be a bit of a tightwad, but I wouldn't be doing this if I was driven by money because the job that I was doing before, the career that I was in before, I could have made way more if I'd taken on loads of responsibility and worked really hard, but I hated it. Right, and that, that proves my point. Like the point you made earlier where you said, aren't we all striving to be rich? Well, clearly you are a prime example of someone who's not because if you were, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Well, I think that maybe my idea of being rich is different from yours then, because my idea of being rich is having a house that is paid for, that is, you know, modest, not a mansion, and uh, a car that doesn't break down all the time, and not having any debt and not having to work, basically. That, to me, is rich. That's quite a lot of work for quite a lot of people. Most people don't achieve that. Most people don't achieve having the house paid for, having the nice car, going on holidays and having stuff paid for, money not being a worry. Most people have some credit card or outstanding debt or something hanging over them, whatever that might be. Most people aren't in that position. Yeah, but I think that it's, it's not unrealistic by the time you get to 60 or 70 to work towards that if you work hard. To, to work towards a position where you have a, a, a small-ish house bought and paid for, 
and a car and maybe some investments that mean that you can live not the life of luxury, but you know, one or two holidays a year, say maybe modest um, holidays in the same country where you live that aren't going to cost you an arm and a leg sort of thing. But I think that is an achievable thing for a lot of people. Perhaps if previous life choices you made earlier and maybe a bum roll of the dice that you might have got at some point in your life might steer that the other way because like we're not totally in control of everything we do like you, you you might be driven and you might be aspirational but if mother nature rolls you a bum hand then you know maybe maybe you're not going to achieve that that ultimate life goal of modest richness I kind of feel like that a lot of people that I've interacted with, and I understand this is a complete anecdote, but uh, of the people that that I know how they came to be in a position of wealth, it almost always starts with some kind of loan or inheritance or help from some close friend or family member or some kind of lucky role that way where they were born into an opportunity where they knew somebody who could help them. Yeah, and then they make the best of it, right? Yeah, so I I don't know if it's necessarily true that a lot of people are in the position to be able to do that. I think there's probably less people than we think that are in that position. And, you know, I feel like I'm extraordinarily lucky in that I've known just the right people to be able to do the things that I got to do to be in the position where I am. I can name probably um, one or two very specific people that if I never knew those people or they never met me, then my life would have gone a completely different direction and I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am being able to even have the career that I have right now. I think it comes down to taking your opportunities and some people call that luck. Some people say you make your own luck and some people are just incredibly unlucky and and don't get those opportunities. But I think if they come up, then you just have to grasp them and then work really hard because even the people who are the, the children of rich people or whatever, if they don't work hard, then they generally don't stay rich. So I think that There is a lot of luck involved, but there is also a lot of hard work. What will the next form of social interaction online look like? We've seen, or at least some of us here have seen, BBSs and news groups and then forums and then social media. So the question is, what do we think is going to happen next? Or is this it? Is social media the be-all and end-all and the end game of social interaction online? It kind of seems like that we're in the very, very early days of more augmented reality-based social interactions. Do you guys remember when Pokemon Go came out? Was that a big thing there? Maybe that was just a big thing here. Oh, no, it was huge here. Yeah. It's kind of a social network, but it's something that happened like in real life. And I had never seen ever so many like random weeknights where you would just see groups of people like meeting up in the physical world. But it was all based on this online thing, right? So uh, it's not so big anymore, but maybe that was the, you know, Zanga or MySpace. And when we get to the Facebook of AR, like that's what it'll be. Damn it, you stole my uh, my reply. Uh, uh, so 
you basically, Joe, have explained the evolution from text-based chat to uh, photos and audio and now video and what's the next step after video, basically. And I agree. It's AR or VR. It's either meet space uh, like predating Pokemon Go ingress and I still see people in my local area hanging around train stations attacking portals in ingress and still get invited to go out with a bunch of people on a weekend and you know hack some portals in ingress so there certainly are communities that build around these things like um, augmented reality games and I think it's either in meat space in AR or the ready player one style VR where people get together that's already halfway there. My son plays more with his friends in Fortnite than he does out in the street with a football. Yeah, you don't need to write in and tell me what a bad parent I am about that. But the fact is, kids of that age play with their friends online. And so their social interaction is Discord. They chat in Discord. They phone each other in WhatsApp. They do FaceTime. It's like real-time communication has got to the point where they can have video chats to any of their friends online anywhere on the planet and play games with each other anywhere on the planet. So I think gaming is a big driver for this, like the next evolution from, um, you know, playing games online with BBSs and stuff is stuff like Fortnite and PUBG and all these other games kids these days play. Um, but I can't, I can't really tell whether it's going to go more down the AR route or more down the VR route. My mind says more VR simply because people tend to spend time in their own houses playing computer games more than going out. But that is going to require the technology to catch up. And we're still not really there, are we? We're not even close to being there where you can just put on something that's as light as a pair of sunglasses because I think it's going to take that for VR to take off properly because while you've got this huge clunky fucking thing with all cables coming out of it, it's going to be a niche thing. Whereas if it is just a pair of sunglasses and somehow that magically works, which would take a massive technological leap in a lot of areas to happen, I just can't see VR taking off somehow. I'm, I, I don't doubt that that will happen eventually, but it just feels like a quite a long way off. I don't know. I, I think people are willing to compromise like the fact that people were willing to have um, conversations with each other using text only systems like BBSs um, and then moved on to like pictures. And now we have animated GIFs and emojis that make it a lot richer um, with mobile phones. People compromise on the fact that battery technology is terrible. So if you spend all day on a social network on a, on a mobile phone these days, your battery will die halfway through the day and you've got to carry another battery around with you so i think people are willing to compromise with the technology if it means that they can interact with people in a fun engaging interesting way i think something else to consider is that not all social network users are doing it for the purpose of directly interacting with other people uh, there's actually um, a researcher at canonical that i spent some time with um several years back and she talked about um, social networking users in a few different ways and some ones that I think that are 
maybe not being as considered in kind of the um, virtual reality or uh, augmented reality space are users who view social networking as a way to just kind of see what other people are doing. They don't necessarily want to interact with them. They just kind of want to see what other people are up to or people who want everyone else to know what they're doing. They don't really want to interact with other people, but they just want to project of here's what I'm up to. Yeah, well, people essentially broadcasting, like Poppy's new, oh, we should give that a plug, shouldn't we? Your telecast thing, which is just you broadcasting your thoughts um, to the world. Yeah, that's just an experiment. And it's no different really than other things that have come before it. It's just uh, delivered via a different means. I'm just recording my thoughts in Telegram and distributing them. Um, I don't think that's any different than uh, a number of other ways of doing it. Like Audio Boom did the same thing years ago, but it had a specific app. But uh, what I'm talking about is like there are people who treat Twitter, Instagram, Facebook as just a broadcast medium and then don't interact with any of the comments or replies or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I think that maybe that's what we need in order for these kind of next generation um, technologies to become fully viable social networks as multiple ways for different kinds of people to not only interact, but just kind of follow or broadcast or or do other styles of using the social network that isn't like you and I are doing a thing together at this moment. I haven't actually given my thoughts on where I think it's going because I haven't got a fucking clue, <laughs> to be honest. I, I think trying to predict the future of these things is just a, a fool's game, really, because if I knew what the future was going to be, then I'd be uh, middle-aged and rich. I don't know. I I've, I remember seeing years ago when um, technologies like 3G were were in embryonic stage, people were saying things like, you know, you'll be able to have video on demand, you'll be able to download entire TV programs or download an entire movie in like 15 minutes or whatever like amount of time it was. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's just mental. Why would anyone want to do that? Why don't they sit in front of their TV and watch TV programs? Or why don't they sit and watch um, movies at the movie theater? And it turns out, consumption of content has changed and people do download stuff like when a new series of something comes out on netflix people itch to get near a wi-fi connection or a decent internet connection to be able to download the latest tv show so they can watch it on a seven inch display not a 42 inch display 10 feet away in the living room or a massive screen in a in a cinema so i think these people who these soothsayers who predict that more bandwidth like higher definition um these things drive people's changes in behavior i think that's right and i think once those technological changes in which enable vr and enable ar to work more seamlessly and faster over super fast internet connections are enabled people will use them Hashtag ask error. If you had to choose between contributing to an Ubuntu flavor or the desktop environment it uses, which would you contribute to? So, for example, the KDE project or Kubuntu? Well, the standard answer is whatever scratches your itch. If you discover uh, something in the desktop that you find interesting and you want to contribute to, contribute to that. If you find something interesting at the distro level, maybe 
packaging libraries is your thing or testing ISOs is your thing or writing documentation for those distros is your thing, then you do that. I think it's it's not one of those one-size-fits-all questions. I think everyone... And, and that's born out of how diverse the open source community is. People find their own way. And I don't think we should pigeonhole people and they should do whatever makes them happy. But what would you do? What did I do? I contributed to Ubuntu and then I filed bugs in Unity and contributed to Ubuntu a bit more. So I did what made me happy. And you also started Ubuntu Mate. Yeah, that made me happy as well. I didn't create Ubuntu Mate for anyone else other than I thought it would be an interesting and cool idea. And I contributed to Ubuntu back in the day because, well, I had a lot of time on my hands and I quite enjoyed it. And I saw people were having problems, so I thought I'd help them. And I'm, you know, a helpful kind of guy. So, Dan, presumably your answer is, fuck both of them. I'm going to create my own distro that's based on Ubuntu. Yeah, I guess, I mean, <laughs> for me, it was like, you know, starting in the desktop environment, right? But um, once once you start going down the whole road of like, how do we make everything better, then I feel like you quickly come to a conclusion that you can't make the desktop environment that much better without working at the distro level, too. And you can't really make the distro much better without working at the desktop environment level. And that's why, like, all these distros, well all the ones we like, uh, push changes upstream, right? Um, because these two things are kind of interdependent on each other. And if you want to make one better, you have to kind of do the other one too. So I, I don't know, for an individual, I think I agree with Alan. You got to pick like where your interests are. But if, if you're a, a psycho and you want to do something like really big, then you have to do both. I think I would be inclined to go for the desktop environment because that will benefit the flavor but it will also benefit everyone else. I suppose you could argue that if everything gets upstreamed, then everyone benefits as well. But you know, say you contribute to Zubuntu, then XFC on Fedora and Arch is also going to get better. I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough about it, but my, my instinct tells me contribute to the environment rather than the distro. But your assumption there is that people do it for the benefit of other people. And often that's not the case. People do it to scratch an itch for whatever their own personal requirement is. So the question is more, what would you personally want to contribute to? What would scratch your itch? What what thing that's broken would you love to see fixed that if you spend a bit of time learning how to fix whatever that thing is, whether it's documentation or code or design or whatever, what would you fix? Uh, screen tearing in XFCA. But I don't know enough about the technicalities of it to know whether that would be better suited to doing it just to XFC, the upstream project, or focusing on Zubuntu and then hoping that the side benefit of that would be that all XFC distros would benefit from it. So I don't know. But I, I, again, my instinct is work on XFC, but I don't know. I think a bit of research would, would figure that out. Probably. Right, I've got a question for you. Do you need to structure your free time in order to not waste it? Or is it good to waste your time sometimes? I was thinking about this the other day. I pretty much had a few hours off work for various reasons. Or, well, a few hours where I didn't have to work. And I ended up wasting that time just talking to my friend 
just about random shit, basically. And at the end of it, I thought, hmm, I, there was stuff that I'd planned to do for this free time. And just as a result of chatting to my friend, who I hadn't spoken to for a while, I just didn't get anything done. And it, it felt like a waste of time. But then it didn't because I caught up with a friend who I hadn't spoken to for a while and I felt good because of that. And and so it, I do often find myself, if I ever have any free time, just feeling like I've wasted it. So I don't know, should I structure it more? Do you guys structure your free time more? I guess that's kind of a odd question for me because kind of all of my time is not really free time, but it's all kind of at my discretion, right? So um, yeah, it's hard to decide what's free time and, and what's not free time, but I, I guess you have to have some kind of structure in some kind of way, right? Without any kind of structure whatsoever, you'd never accomplish anything. So there has to be some kind of at least direction. But I, I feel like when it comes to like completely non-working time, if that's what we mean by free time is, is time that I'm not using to do work-related tasks, then I would rather have it be as spontaneous as possible. I, I, I feel like when I'm off of work, that the last thing that I want to do is like plan or be in charge of something. I'd rather someone else even plan it if if they want to do that. But I think for my time when I'm not working that I don't really care if it's like wasted or, or not because it's time that I'm taking to just kind of do things that are enjoyable. And if things are enjoyable, then, then I accomplished my task. Otherwise, you know, there's not really things that I have to like specifically do in, in my free time. I guess there's different ways of measuring what you define as wasting time. And everyone has their own measure of whether the thing they're doing in their spare time is, you know, is a good use of their time. I've just had a week's holiday and, um, we shared a villa with a bunch of people who I've, I don't hang out with very much. And it was interesting seeing how other people spend their time and how other people behave when they're on holiday or away from work. And for me, if I'm, busy at work when i go on holiday i want to switch off and i don't organize anything i leave it up to everyone else and i'll just tag along so you know if someone wants to organize going to a restaurant then i'll come along and i'll have fun i won't sit on my own or anything but i'll dial my brain down a bit during holiday because i don't want to be doing organizing of stuff i'd, I'd rather someone else did that whereas there's another guy who's a uh works in the finance industry who came with us who reads a lot of documents while he's on uh, on the day job and on holiday he's got a book with him and he's read like three pages because he finds it quite a chore because he reads all day at work so i guess it depends what you define as productive use of your spare in inverted commas time but it reminds me very much of a um there was a Mitchell and Webb sketch where uh, this guy dies and goes to heaven and he's at the pearly gates and uh, I think St. Peter or whoever is at the gate and congratulates the guy for achieving his life's work of winning at solitaire, you know, 8,000 times. And the guy's like, what? That wasn't my life's work. And he says, oh, really? Well, it was the single thing you spent the most amount of spare time doing. So, you know, I, I think it really depends on how you define what spare time is and what you what you consider a waste of that time because i could consider that the amount of time i spend in rust which is nearly 800 hours of my life now <laughs> is a waste 
but I enjoy it. So is it a waste? 800 divided by 24, 33 days of your life. A month. A month of my life. So that's one twelfth of the 40-something years I've lived. Just one month I've spent playing a single video game. Yeah. And if you do get genuine enjoyment from it, then it's worth it, surely. Yeah, totally. So is sitting there just playing bad versions of ACDC riffs over and over again, does that count if you have fun doing it? Or is that a waste of time? Have to wait till you get to the pearly gates and see when you're judged, Joe. <laughs> 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 <laughs>